Hello, my name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. I hope you enjoy listening to today's discussion. Hello and welcome to the Quillette podcast. My name's Toby Young and I'm an Associate Editor. I recently took a trip to Oxford to speak with Jeff McMahon, a professor of moral philosophy and one of the founders of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. This publication, which is due to launch in 2019, will in many respects be similar to other academic journals. It'll have an editorial board, and the research papers it publishes will go through a rigorous peer review process. But it'll have one distinctive characteristic. Contributors will be given the option of publishing their research pseudonymously. I began by asking Professor McMahon how the idea for the journal came about, and why he and his co-founders, the philosophers Peter Singer and Francesca Minerva, believe that some academics and intellectuals who have controversial ideas need to protect themselves in this way. Is the free speech crisis in the academy really so acute that anyone who openly dissents from the prevailing orthodoxy is endangering their career? How did the Journal of Controversial Ideas come about? Was it your idea? No, not at all my idea. It was the idea of an Italian postdoc at the University of Ghent named Francesca Minerva, whom I've known for many years through her association with the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics here in Oxford, though she's no longer, I think, officially affiliated with, with the Uhiro Center. Around about 2012, she co-authored an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics in which she and her co-author defended the limited permissibility of infanticide, early infanticide, in certain cases. And this was not new in philosophy. Other philosophers had made similar arguments. Um, but her piece was picked up by blogs in the United States in particular, and she and her co-author began receiving very many death threats. And um, and this was from what, pro-life activists, was it? This was, yeah, this was mainly from, uh, yeah, pro-life people. Primarily, my sense is from the kind of right-wing fundamentalist Christian people in the United States. But also people in Australia. So she was in Melbourne at the time, and I read in an interview with her that... Some of the death threats were clearly from Melbourne, and she was advised by the security people at the university not to use her office for a certain period of time, to stay home, to stay locked in, and that kind of thing. So that's the background to it. Um, that was a number of years ago, about six years ago, six or seven. And more recently, she thought that it would be a good idea to have a journal in which people could publish serious arguments for positions that might lead them to come under threat in this way or in other ways. A number of people have faced threats to their careers, to their jobs, and so on, from strong responses to work that they have published or 
ideas that they have espoused. There are many other cases of this sort. You're probably familiar with um, the instance at Middlebury College a year and a half or so ago when Charles Murray was to speak there and was to debate a left-wing political science professor there, a woman named Alison Stanger, who was recently my guest here in Oxford, gave a wonderful paper here a month and a half or so ago. They were prevented from speaking by students who shouted them down, and as they were leaving, she was kind of manhandled by the students when they were leaving the building and suffered both a concussion and a whiplash and had to be taken to the emergency room and treated for those conditions. That was another incident. Um, so it was that kind of event that prompted Francesca to have the idea of a, a journal in which people could write in support of ideas that might prompt responses of the sort that Stanger and Francesca herself had, had faced from things that they had written or said. And so she asked Peter Singer and me if we would help her to set up the journal, and we agreed to do that. We have mainly just assembled a large editorial board and helped try to find a publication venue for the journal. As, as of yet, the journal doesn't exist. It will. When do you think the first issue might appear? No idea, really. Uh, we are still negotiating with a couple of publishers to see what we can arrange for open access internet publication. And once that's decided, we will immediately issue a call for submissions. And when we get enough publishable material, uh, we'll produce the first issue. And since it will probably be internet only, I'm guessing, rather than paper publication, we should be able to publish more or less immediately when we've assembled uh, enough good material. And am I right in thinking that some of the articles will be published under the author's own names. That's it won't right. just be. That's right. We're, we're hoping that people will publish under their own names. But the point of the journal is to offer the option of pseudonymous publication if people feel that they need it. And will it be up to the contributors if their pieces are approved for publication as to whether they publish under their own names or not? Or will you, will you at any stage, do you think, advise them that what they're proposing to write is so controversial that it would be prudent to not publish it under their own names? No, I don't think we would advise anyone to publish pseudonymously. It's to offer the option. It's not to encourage it. It's intended in part to protect vulnerable academics and intellectuals from potentially harmful repercussions to mm -hmm. them from what they publish. But that's not its sole reason for existence. If it's not just going to be publishing articles pseudonymous. How, how do you pronounce that? I think it, pseudonymously. Pseudonymously. It may not even be in the dictionary. And it is pseudonymously, not anonymously. I mean, what, why not just um, sort of uh, not sign the articles? Why, why sign them under fake names? Just to be able to distinguish among different contributors, right. rather than have a string of articles all published by okay. Anonymous. And will you be limiting yourself to the humanities and the social sciences, or will you be going into the life sciences, mathematics? 
In principle, we're open to, to anything. I mean, it's hard to imagine an article in mathematics <laughs> well, being con sufficiently controversial. You would have thought, but we, um, in Quillette last year, we published a piece by uh, Dr. Theodore Hill about an article he'd submitted for publication and which had been accepted by a mathematics journal and was then rejected. And so he submitted it to another journal and it was accepted, published, then unpublished. And it was considered controversial because he was defending the greater male variability hypothesis, which uh, in part posits that there is a greater range in cognitive ability for human males than there is for human females. Yes, and that, but that's, that's, not, that's not a mathematical issue. It seems to me odd that it would be published in a mathematical a journal. And, um, it right, was but a, that, it, he can be a mathematician, but that's not a claim about math. That's a claim about human cognitive capacities. And so it is, it's an issue in psychology, neuroscience. But on the editorial board of the journal, are there some scientists and are there any mathematicians? There are no mathematicians that I can think of. I'd have to take a look down the list, but uh, no, I don't think there are any mathematicians. And is it public knowledge who's on the editorial board, or will, will some of them be pseudonymous as well? No, no one on the editorial board will be pseudonymous or anonymous. And I don't yet know whether the composition of the editorial board has yet been revealed. I haven't revealed it. Some people have revealed themselves. That is, some people have mentioned in public that they are members of the editorial board. But so far, we're still assembling the members of the board and, to my knowledge, have not released the list yet. But there are people from a variety of disciplines, mainly in the social sciences and humanities, but we do have some other people as well. And it's the Journal of Controversial Ideas. How are you going to define what a controversial idea is. How will you decide whether something is suitable for publication in the journal, suitably controversial? Well, the basic criterion is whether it's an article on a subject that takes a view that, or defends a view, that is of a kind that arouses emotions of anger, indignation, outrage in a sufficient number of people to make it risky in some way or other for the author to publish the article. And that's defined by the times. So an idea that would have been controversial 500 years ago may not be at all controversial now, might have led to someone's being burned as a heretic some centuries ago. An idea of that sort might not be at all controversial now. Things that are controversial now may not be controversial 100 years from now. So there's a certain kind of relativity to culture in what makes something controversial. We hope that the journal will not be limited to publishing work by authors from Western liberal democracies. We hope that it will be, we would like it to be open to publication in, in English or of work by people from other countries, non-Western countries, in which publication of ideas that might not be controversial here in the UK would be 
controversial nonetheless where these people live and could get them into a lot of trouble, for example, with their own government or certain communities in their home countries, so that it might be advisable for them to be able to publish pseudonymously. And what lengths will you go to to protect the identity of the people who want to publish pseudonymously in the journal? Uh, and for instance, will the people you send their articles to to be reviewed know the identity of the authors or can they keep that secret? Are there levels of anonymity that you'll be offering the contributors? No, I don't think so. I think, I suppose it's conceivable that someone could submit something to the journal without even the editors knowing the identity of, of the author. That, I suppose, is possible if somebody has just a post office box number. To be honest, I haven't really <laughs> thought mm -hmm. about this. The expectation, I think, is that at least one editor will know the identity of the author but the referees or the reviewers of articles will not know the identity of the authors and neither will members of the editorial board if they happen to be consulted, which we anticipate that they will be if there's a paper in their particular area of expertise. And I think my expectation is, though we haven't decided on policy about this yet, that we will not have any kind of electronic storage of information about the identities of authors. I would rather keep it out of our computers and have it stored only in paper in certain places, uh, given the vulnerability of computer systems nowadays. How controversial are you prepared to be? So, as a hypothetical example, suppose Charles Murray wanted to revisit the controversial chapter in the bell curve about whether racial disparities in outcome are in some way linked to genetic differences which are racially based. The kind of live rail of intelligence research. Would you be prepared to publish something like that or is that somewhere you're not going to go? No, in principle, we would be prepared, I think, I'm speaking for myself here, to publish something like that, provided, and this is a very important proviso, that the arguments were really good and the evidence was really solid, and this would have to pass a very rigorous peer review before we do it. I mean, the whole point of the journal is to publish really good work, the conclusions of which will antagonize some people. But the work has to be really good. That's important. I mean, the journal will have no credibility. No article in the journal will have any credibility if pieces in the journal don't meet the highest standards of academic and intellectual rigor. So that's what's important. There are kind of two objections to publishing some of the more controversial intelligence researchers. The first objection is that their work is methodologically flawed, uh, they cherry-pick the data, their conclusions just can't be trusted. And then there's a second set of objections, which are, well, some of these claims may be true, but they will give succor 
to racists and other antisocial, undesirable types. And therefore, we shouldn't publish this because it could lead to harmful consequences, yeah. even if it's true. Yeah. I mean, will you be taking a view about some things? I mean, that was just a, a hypothetical example. There could be other areas of research which you think are so potentially harmful if they're misunderstood or even if they're understood correctly that you just won't be publishing that kind of thing. Well, let me say, in principle, it's certainly possible that some research, even if well-grounded, could, if published, have such bad consequences that it would be better not to publish it. That is, it would be morally impermissible to publish it because of the consequences. That, I think, is true. That is, it can wait until another day. I don't think that there's any research that perhaps ought never to be published. As I said earlier, what arouses people's anger, hostility, indignation, and so on is changeable over, over time. And there can be certain historical moments when it would just be wrong to publish certain ideas, even if true, if they could lead to terribly bad consequences for certain people. One objection to the greater male variability hypothesis isn't that it's not true. It's that, well, if it is true, it could be used as a pretext for hiring fewer women as professors in STEM subjects or fewer women in senior positions at tech companies like Google. So publicizing this hypothesis and providing evidence that it's true could harm the careers of women or give succor to misogynists who are sort of searching for ammunition reasons to obstruct the progress of women in their companies or their departments. So that would be a sort of an argument that publishing this research would be wrong, not because it's not true, but because it could be harmful to women. Is that an argument you'd consider, an objection you'd consider to publishing something like Ted Hill's piece? It's an argument that one would have to consider. It would be a mistake to reject arguments without considering them. But in considering whether the publication of an article would be harmful and whether, whether that would provide sufficient reason to prevent the publication of the art article, one would have to weigh considerations of various sorts. This is something that has to be done in moral decision-making. One weighs the countervailing reasons against each other. And uh, one consideration would have to be how likely is it that harm is going to uh, occur? How bad would the harm be? Would it be particularly bad for certain individuals or would it be widely dispersed over a large group of individuals? That kind of thing. So all of these are considerations that would have to be taken into account in reaching a decision about this kind of thing. My own sense is that further arguments by people who, such as this man, is Hill is his name? Ted Hill. Yep. Ted Hill or Charles Murray, I think are very unlikely to affect 
hiring in university departments or in tech companies like Google. But one would need to do some investigation into the facts before coming to judgments about matters of that sort. All I wanted to say was really that, in principle, whether it is morally acceptable to publish a certain article can depend on the likely consequences of publication. It's not just a matter of whether the conclusions of the article are true. On the other hand, the presumption, I think, is in favor of publication of good arguments for positions and allow free debate to continue about these okay. subjects. So I now want to get on to two different sets of objections to the journal. One from, broadly speaking, the social justice left, the other from defenders of intellectual freedom. So the first set of objections, one objection is that people such as yourself, publications like Quillette, intellectuals like uh, Jordan Peterson, have that the claims they make about the potentially harmful consequences of expressing controversial ideas are in some cases wildly exaggerated, in other cases just straightforwardly false. Often people who make this argument back it up by saying, look at all these stars of the intellectual dark web who are associated with a particular set of controversial ideas like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, even Brett Weinstein. They're all wildly successful. Their careers haven't suffered because they've expressed dissent from the kind of prevailing uh, left-wing identitarian orthodoxy, social justice ideology. On the contrary, their, their careers have thrived. They've got these, you know, podcasts that millions of people listen to, their books sell by the millions. You know, it's just, what are you talking about? Expressing controversial ideas is a way to advance your career. It doesn't hurt your career. That's true in some cases, not true in other cases. So I think, for example, Francesca Minerva has the sense that her career has been set back by the notoriety that she acquired through the publication of her piece on infanticide. She has evidence that departments have thought she's too controversial. It's going to be harmful to the department to hire in somebody like that. My colleague Peter Singer, who's also one of the editors of the yet-to-be-fully-established journal, was uh, offered his appointment at Princeton. He, too, faced physical threats. He, he was advised by the security people at Princeton to, in certain ways for, to take certain precautions for his own safety. I, I, I believe there had to be guards at the doors his first year teaching there when, when he would have guest lecturers and that sort of thing. So um, it is to end uh, back in the late 1980s, I believe it was. Yes, in Germany, Peter was actually physically attacked uh, when he was giving a lecture and was struck in the face. So there are ways in which, um, for example, Peter's reputation has um, been boosted by the kind of publicity that he gets through being denounced from the pulpit and that kind of thing. But all things considered, is it advantageous to 
be exposed to death threats um, in a country in which a lot of people carry guns in order to get a bit of increased notoriety? That's a, that's a difficult question to answer. So I guess a lot depends on um, the circumstances. Here's another case that comes to mind. Uh, I have a colleague here in Oxford, Nigel Bigger, who is a professor of theology, uh, who is doing some research now on British colonial practice, uh, which was denounced in an open letter by a number of colleagues. And that has made it more difficult for students, for example, to work with him. If a if, 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 if student now has Nigel Bigger as their supervisor, it's very likely that a letter of recommendation from him may be discounted or, or counted against his student when his student goes to seek a job somewhere. And so I think Nigel's expectation is that he's now going to have fewer students wanting to work with him as a result of what's happened. And that seems to me not an unreasonable fear. Uh, so while it may on balance be advantageous to people like Jordan Peterson, about whom I know nothing, there are many others, even persons of considerable distinction like Nigel Bigger, for whom it is a net disadvantage to be personally associated with ideas that antagonize mm -hmm. many of his colleagues within the universities. So. I guess the people who signed one of the two letters, I think it was, condemning Nigel Bigger would say, this doesn't represent a threat to free speech. This is an example of free speech in action. And often when people complain about a crisis in free speech in universities, what they mean is that straight white men are no longer enjoying the kind of monopoly in academic discourse that they used to enjoy, and they're now having to share space with women and minorities and are challenged in a way they weren't challenged before. And uh, this is actually just an example of how vibrant intellectual life is on British and American campuses and across the Anglosphere. This isn't an example of uh, free speech being endangered. Well, uh what I think is undesirable is the increased focus on the supposed turpitude of the people who defend certain claims or conclusions instead of a focus on the quality or character of the ideas and the arguments. That is, I think, what's disturbing now. Academic freedom and free speech should involve vigorous debate about the ideas rather than attacks on the moral character or credibility of the persons who espouse the ideas. And so the, the attacks on persons are what's problematic. And the journal is intended to enable people to produce ideas that can be vigorously, and if necessary, heatedly debated without the people themselves coming under attack. I suppose um, 
just thinking about how a critic on the left might develop their argument, they might say, well, we think the fact that Nigel Bigger is a white man is relevant when it comes to assessing any claims he might make about the British Empire, Britain's colonial past, and that those categories of identity mean that you're in a particular position which affects the conclusions you come to, how you interpret the world, how you understand books and history, and that therefore you can't ignore what appear to you to be those arbitrary categories of his identity. They are central to understanding his argument. And in the same way, it's going to be difficult for people to really engage with and respond to pieces in your journal if they don't know whether the person's male or female, white, non-white, straight, gay, cis, non-cis, etc., that you're actually depriving the intellectual audience of vital information that, that they think they need if they're going to kind of respond in a full and meaningful way to the article in question. I think it's that's standpoint theory, I think, or something like that. I, I don't know. This is, this is um, if there is such a thing called uh, a standpoint theory, I'm unfamiliar with it. So forgive me if I don't, don't know about that. But it seems to me to be a mistake. That is, one should be able to assess ideas impartially and objectively without knowing anything about the source of the ideas. Okay. I mean, uh, well, uh, just take an example on, on the other side. Suppose someone were to say, we can't trust Noam Chomsky's ideas about the politics of the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because he's Jewish. That would just be a mistake. People can make good arguments for positions that are associated with persons of a different kind of social identity. One thing you've stressed when talking about the journal is that it's not going to be partisan, that you think the threat to academics and intellectuals who express controversial ideas comes from both the left and the right. It's certainly not confined to the left. Does that mean that uh, the content of the journal, that, that that will be fairly bipartisan too? And that do you have an idea of a sort of roughly 50-50 split with some articles likely to antagonize, I don't know, fundamentalist Christians in the Deep South and other articles likely to antagonize kind of militant secularists at um, University College London? I don't think that, that, that we will make any effort to try to achieve a balance, no. Okay. Again, once we have enough articles that meet the relevant standards of quality, we'll publish them. And I don't think that we'll pay any attention to the distribution of the contents across different controversies. One criticism you hear, a slightly glib criticism, but you hear it quite often about proposals like this, innovations like this, is that if people are concerned, if academics are concerned about possible harmful repercussions from uh, publicly expressing controversial ideas, aren't they being over-timid? 
aren't they themselves being snowflakes, which is often a criticism thrown by defenders of intellectual freedom at oversensitive students who claim that to hear a controversial idea will cause them lasting psychological harm. Isn't there something a bit snowflakey about publishing intellectuals pseudonymously? Shouldn't they stand up and defend their ideas and be willing to take on all comers in the intellectual arena? That's easier for some people to do than it is for others. Um, consequences for someone like Peter Singer, whose reputation is well established, apart from threats to his physical safety and security and threats to his family and that sort of thing, are not likely to be particularly damaging. So someone like Peter can publish what he wants without excessive fear of harm to him, apart from, as I say, physical threats, threats of physical violence and so on. But that's not true of people whose positions in academia are more vulnerable or less secure. So again, it varies a lot from person to person and from society to society. Again, I, I do want to stress that we don't intend to limit our submissions to authors coming from Western democracies. Um, and threats. there are threats to people in other societies around the world which are much greater. Uh, e even if they don't include threats of attack from private individuals, they, they, they may include, um, nevertheless, uh, threats of persecution from government, which can be quite serious in some areas of the world. Uh, if you think back to, for example, the 1970s and um, think about what the intellectual atmosphere was like for people in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, you'll see that it was not just timidity or being a snowflake that uh, deterred the authors of Samizdat publications from trying to publish their work openly and under their own names. They faced something like the Gulag or uh, really serious forms of, of, of persecution. Now, this is not something that we face in Britain or the United States or Australia or European countries. Still, sometimes the, the, the threats are significant enough that I think it's too much to ask to expect particular individuals to accept the, the risks themselves. And it's better if they can publish their ideas without having to face those consequences and let, let the ideas be debated without particular individuals having to become martyrs to mm -hmm. the circulation of the, of the ideas. So that's... Um Oh, that's an interesting analogy, which brings me to my next point, which is um, one theory as to why certain ideas cannot be expressed and aren't expressed uh, as openly as they should be is it's to do with preference falsification. So the idea is that they believe that the positions they hold are held by very few people and that the orthodox position is held by the vast majority of people. But that's a false belief, and it's a false belief that the 
defenders of the orthodox position manage to perpetrate by being noisier and more aggressive than dissenters and by punishing dissenters wherever possible. And one theory invoking this notion of preference falsification is that the reason communist control systems in countries like Czechoslovakia, more broadly in the Soviet Union, managed to survive long after they enjoyed any legitimacy, anything like majority support in their countries, is because the authorities were great at creating this impression that they did enjoy authority and legitimacy and by punishing anyone who expressed a dissenting point of view. And isn't one risk with a journal like this is that you're essentially confirming the, 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 the false idea that the minority views, the controversial ideas you'll be publishing are held by a tiny group and that the orthodoxy, which they'll be challenging, is upheld by the vast majority. Whereas if you encourage people who do dissent to dissent publicly and to stand up and effectively say the emperor has no clothes, isn't that the way of breaking the spell that the defenders of the orthodoxy have created, the illusion that they've created that their ideas their position enjoys far more legitimacy and authority than it really does. Won't you be essentially helping the opponents of intellectual freedom by confirming their false claim that dissenting from their point of view is, that the, the points of view expressed by the dissenters are much less common and much less widely held than they really are? Again, I think there's a lot of variation here from issue to issue. And that some of the people who do defend very controversial positions are defending positions that are held by only a very tiny minority. So take, for example, Francesca Minerva's view about infanticide. That is very much a minority view, the idea that it can be permissible to kill newborn babies for certain reasons. That is, in the West and in most other places, a view that is anathema to the vast majority of people. In other cases, the phenomenon you describe is probably as you describe it, namely, uh, some positions are widely held, but... Um, there's a, a, a very vocal and militant minority that make that position uh, seem as if it were um, more controversial than it in fact is. But I, I, I don't think that one should make a decision about whether to offer the option of pseudonymous publication on the basis of a consideration of this sort. Namely, whether one will be reinforcing the view that the orthodox view on a certain issue is is actually widely held. That's a consideration that is comparatively minor, it seems to me, in relation to people's having the option of publishing something without having to accept a lot of adverse consequences to themselves if they care about the issue that they want to write about. So, we're, we're, again, we're weighing considerations for and against. Mm -hmm. 
for example, having a journal that offers the option of pseudonymous publication. And the, the problem you describe is perhaps a real problem in, with respect to certain issues, say on infanticide, I think it's not. Mm -hmm. But even so, sh should that consideration itself be decisive in de determining whether we should have such a journal? I think not. It's not that significant a consideration, it seems to me. I suppose the, the broader point is that by offering people who want to dissent from the prevailing orthodoxy the opportunity to publish pseudonymously, you're effectively conceding too much to the defenders of the orthodoxy. You're effectively allowing that their view is the dominant view and the view which currently enjoys authority and legitimacy in the academy. And therefore, if you're going to challenge it, you need to protect yourself in various ways. That seems to be just... I mean, let me express this another way. One of the ways in which defenders of the orthodoxy preserve the orthodoxy is by effectively defining an Overton window of what it's acceptable to openly discuss and publicly write about in the academy and things it isn't acceptable to discuss and write about. And that, that it, it, it's sort of shifting around a bit. It, it's probably shifted leftwards over the past 25 years. But by defining certain ideas as being so controversial that they might need to be published pseudonymously, aren't you effectively granting the power of the enemies of intellectual freedom to define the Overton window in the way they have. And you're saying, yes, we accept that these boundaries that you've created are legitimate. And so anyone outside expressing something that doesn't fall within that window is going to need to protect themselves. You're sort of, it's conceding too much, isn't it, to the kind of talk madars, uh, the enemies of intellectual freedom, if you're allowing them to define the Overton window of what can and can't be publicly discussed in the academy, which your journal seems to be doing. I think what you're saying now assumes that the threats to authors come exclusively from within academia, and that's not the case. For example, there's been very little writing by philosophers and people on the left about the issue of guns in the United States. But I have written a little about that. And while I haven't felt particularly threatened by members of the gun lobby, I could imagine circumstances in the United States in which I would feel very threatened by uh, members of the gun lobby. I mean, physically threatened. The problem is, as I've said before, that there is an increasing tendency, not just in universities, but outside universities as well, to think that it is appropriate to respond to ideas with which one disagrees by, in one way or another, attacking the sources of those ideas, by going after the persons themselves. 
trying to intimidate them, coerce them, deter them from speaking, silencing persons. And we are trying through the journal to offer people an opportunity to avoid these threats and still produce arguments for the views that they think are worth defending. And if this is conceding a certain kind of power to people who want to suppress ideas they disagree with, then I think in a way it's the, t the spirit of the times that makes that inevitable. It's either that or allow people to be deterred from giving good arguments for views that they believe are true and important. And so our hope is that having this journal is a very temporary measure. It's a, it's a response to a problem that we think is, we hope, is temporary. But it's a problem that has sources in the culture itself, not just within the culture within universities. This is a phenomenon that is not confined to universities. It exists outside the universities as well. Does that mean you'll be publishing not just pieces by academics, but by some journalists as well? If the arguments are good and the evidence is sound, yes. And it doesn't matter who the author is. Yeah, of course. I mean, but that's true of academic journals as well. It's just that people tend not to be motivated to write mm -hmm. academic-type articles for academic journals. Mm -hmm. um, this is meant to be an academic journal. That is to say, it is not going to be a mass-market publication. Right. So what's been the reaction of your colleagues? Has it been broadly positive, or have you had some people say... I don't think we need this. You're corroborating the idea that there is a free speech crisis and there really isn't. You know, you, you, you're giving sucker to the right. Well, I've seen a little bit of, uh, of both. I don't myself have any accounts in social media and never have. So I don't see things on Twitter or Facebook. What I've been told is that there's been a lot of criticism of the idea of the journal on social media by my colleagues. The emails I've received have generally been very encouraging and they've come from friends and people I've never heard of before. But I honestly, I see only what comes into my inbox. I don't really see what's going on in social media and on, on the internet generally because I just don't I'm too, I've got too much work to do. I right. don't have time to explore those things. I mean, how prepared are you? I mean, it might be that in the quite near future, you find yourself in the front line. For instance, Nigel Bigger might submit an article defending some aspect of Britain's colonial past or challenging the orthodox view. And he would want to publish it under his own name. It would become known that he wanted to publish this piece. It might be that you'd come under pressure from colleagues here at this college, as well as in Oxford more broadly, not to publish that article. Are you ready for that fight and for the potential? You have tenure, so I don't imagine that your own career would be in jeopardy, but it might be, you might, there might be social repercussions. You might, there might be people who, you know, who would refuse to talk to you or sit next to you at 
high table or whatever. Are you prepared for these kinds of um, battles ahead? Yes, I'm personally not particularly worried about this. That is to say, if I have colleagues who would do the sorts of things you've just mentioned, um, then perhaps I should be pleased that they will identify themselves in those ways and I will understand them better. That is to say, I, I, I will have a better understanding of, of what they are like than I have right now. But I don't, I don't expect that to happen in the case of people whose um, opinions I, uh, people who, let me put it this way, people whom I respect. I, I, I don't expect that to happen. I'm not, uh, I'm by no means Peter Singer, who has encountered a lot of opposition. I haven't in, in my career. But I am, as you note, far enough along that I, I'm not, I don't think, in danger of losing my position over this kind of thing. I myself don't anticipate ever trying to publish anything pseudonymously. Mm -hmm. I, I am willing to take the consequences for what I believe in and am prepared to defend. And that's been true of the people I've most admired in my career, people like Bertrand Russell, Noam Chomsky. They're people I've looked up to. They have taken many, many controversial positions and been vilified and threatened and so on as a result of having done so. And they've survived it. Okay. Hey, one last question. Um, how is the publication being funded? That could be a way that people who disagree with articles you're either proposing to publish or have published might try and get to you. Um, I mean, if, if you're reliant on university presses, for instance, that was one of the reasons that uh, I gather Ian Baruma had to step down from editing the New York Review of Books. It's because the publisher was concerned that university presses might start withdrawing their advertising from the magazine unless he stood down. Mm -hmm. Will you be dependent on university press advertising at all or anything like that? No. Uh, we're, we're just beginning to wrestle with the issue of funding. At the moment, we have no funding, nothing whatsoever. And we're looking for ways in which to publish this journal with absolutely minimal funding. That's to say, we're trying to find people who will help us with the work without requiring to be paid. Our editorial board members, of course, are not expecting salaries. Editorial board members never do. I'm a member of many editorial boards and I do a lot of work for journals and we all do that for free. So what I'm hoping is that we will be able to get by without needing much in the way of funding. I expect we will need some. We will have to pay for copy editing and things of that sort. At the moment, we don't quite know where that money is going to come from. It may come from our own pockets initially. We'll have to wait and see. Or we may have to um, ask for donations. Right. But we're not, at, we're not at that point yet. Okay. So that's, that's a matter for future deliberation, really. Okay. But we don't want to be beholden to any particular individuals. We don't want to have to make ourselves vulnerable to being controlled by people who provide the funding. Mm -hmm. Professor McMahon, thank you very much for talking to Quillette and good luck with your journal. Thank you very much. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. 
If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.